Hey, 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 how we doing? You guys doing all right? That sounded like Fat Albert. Hey, hey, hey. That was awesome. That was unexpected. It's the coffee. Actually, just nerves. Today, uh, we are jumping into Genesis chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump into Genesis chapter 6 with me this morning. Uh, we are hitting the most um, insane, uh, difficult passage to interpret in all of Genesis, I believe. Uh, so many different words, so many different meanings. We're going to be here a little bit. I'm not going to give you all the answers that you probably desire this morning, but I'm going to at least try and make sense of Genesis chapter 6 this morning. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the scene in Genesis chapter 6 reminded me of a time when I was traveling with my oldest at this point, and I'm not going to embarrass her because there's, there's, there's just she wasn't in control at this point. So she was just a baby at this point, and we were traveling to see friends out in California, and uh, we were, uh, at that point, um, just traveling by standby because my um, brother had a great deal. If you flew standby, really cheap tickets, almost free at times, and so we're like, let's just fly standby. We'll be fine. So we both grabbed everything we have, first time traveling with her across the United States, and uh, we... Uh, hit some kind of layover, and I don't even remember where it was, but uh, it was at that layover that we saw the standby sign, and they said, we only have room for one of you. <laughs> to which my reaction was like, you should go. Like, you should go. You should take her. I'll be fine. You know what I mean? Like, just trying to avoid it. But no, I, I, I said, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take her. And so um, I ended up taking her and the stroller and myself, and Carrie had a second flight, undetermined as far as when that flight would be and when she would get in, but I have now my little daughter and we're flying across. It's that kind of morning today. You can feel that, feel that today? Just anybody else want to? Um, so we, uh, so we were flying, and uh, I arrived in, uh, well, before we landed in LAX, there was probably about a good hour and a half where there was just constant crying. You know, it starts off with a crying that nobody kind of, like, acknowledges, and then all of a sudden it just gets old, and everybody starts judging you for you being the parent on the plane who can't control your kid, and I'm just like, it won't stop, and I'm doing this as if it's going to help, and just... I mean, by the time we landed, it was, it was fever pitch. I mean, I think there was cheering when we got off the plane because they're like, they're finally gone. And I, I was walking through LAX and just, I had no, it's that frazzled moment. You don't know what, where you're at, what you're doing. And I'm like, I'm guessing I'm just going to go down and get my luggage. And so I, I grab her. I try and grab our luggage. I finally make it there. She's still not having any of it. And I remember it was the moment where I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I don't know when she's, my wife's getting in. I'm probably never going to see her again. I mean, it was just that moment, and I'm sitting at the bottom. I'm, I literally can see it in my head. I'm sitting at the bottom of a stairwell in LAX with my baggage next to me and my daughter in my arms looking homeless and just rocking her like this. At the I don't know why I was at the bottom of a stairwell, but it, was, it seemed like the only escapable place. And it was as if the world around me was closing in. It was as if the, as if the world around me was collapsing in on itself. And I just thought, I'm going to be here forever. And it was the most terrible feeling in the world, rocking and trying to maintain some sense of control when everything around me was out of control. 
That is the scene and scenario we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6. The world is out of control. Humanity is folding in on itself. And we'll see later that creation even God allows to fold in on itself. And it is the evil that is on display in this day in Genesis chapter 6 is so intense and so loud it felt like that airport. It just, it just feels as if everything is out of control. And yet my hope this morning as we look at this passage is, is yes, as we look at this text, and we're going to try and understand it as best we can, but, but overwhelmingly I hope that you see in Genesis chapter 6 something different. I hope that you see that Jesus always keeps his promises and Jesus is not soft in dealing justice. And I hope that you see that when the humanity folds in on itself and when we are at our worst, Jesus is at his best and he remembers his promises, and he will not deal softly when it comes to dealing out the justice that needs to be done. We're going to see all of that in Genesis chapter 6. It is a chapter where I think we'll see evil on display, we'll see humanity folding in on itself, and the bottom line of Genesis chapter 6, if we were to kind of encapsulate it, I kind of came up with this one. Hopefully this makes sense for all of Genesis chapter 6. It is in Genesis chapter 6 that God allows mankind and even creation to fold in on itself. But God will remember his promise and bring order to chaos and restoration to unrestraint. I hope that you see that today in Genesis 6, that God will remember his promise and bring order to chaos and restoration to unrestraint. That's where we head. So, a little bit of background. Genesis chapter 3, we see sin to Adam and Eve imputed to humanity and it stayed in the garden. In Genesis 4, we see that sin spreads and becomes even more destructive. In Genesis 5, you see a long lineage of the line of Adam. And in Genesis 6, we see that sin is now everywhere, including, you'll see, uh, and many, many believe that this is also now even into the spiritual world. We're seeing some pieces of that today as well. And the bottom line that will get us through these next two weeks is simply that, that as the world implodes, God is still faithful we're going to see how far we get today, but for the, for the bulk of it today, we're going to be in Genesis um, 6. We're going to jump back a little bit into 528 to get some context over into 710. And then next week, we'll hit chapter 7 uh, into chapter 9. Okay, so this is going to, we're going to see how far we get today with the flood story. And then next week, we'll finish up what we don't get to today because there's so much to cover. So if you have your Bibles, let's start. We're going to be in 528 to 68 is the first part of today. And then we'll go to Genesis chapter 6, 9 to 710. In the beginning, let's go to 528 just to get some context of where we're at. So when Lemek had lived 182 years, this is chapter 5, verse 28. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years, and Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And that's where we get our context. Now, here's the thing you need to understand, which I've, I've preached this uh, wrong in the past, uh, but actually there's two Lemics in Scripture and not the same Lemic. So when you think Lemic of last time, you're thinking, didn't that guy like write a song of like evil and terror? Yeah, that's that guy. This is a different Lemic, and this is the Lemic that is father of Noah. And he is saying, man, could this Noah possibly be the seed that could bring about restoration to all of humanity? That was his hope. 
Two Lemics, one Noah, and Noah in this idea here is this idea of grace. That his name is this rest. His name is grace and rest. And, and as he is in the picture, we're going to see more about that as we move ahead. But just to get some context, that's where we find ourselves. And now we are introduced to this figure of Noah. In chapter uh, 6, verse 1, it says, When man became to, began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Now, we're going to kind of hit a couple different big things today, so I thought it'd be good to just kind of give them to you up front, and then we're going to unpack these, because this is the chapter, when, if you've ever been in church before, or if you've been in this chapter, this is the chapter that has so many questions of like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Where are you going to go on that? So let me just kind of give you the, why this is, is, is such a hard chapter, and then let me kind of give you some things that come out of it. So the reason this is a hard chapter are, are a couple things. One, Adam, in this, in this uh, passage, and also in Hebrew, Adam has three different meanings. It can mean the, the man Adam, it can mean man, or it can, man, it can mean mankind. So throw that into your mix, and so you're like, okay, so which Adam are we talking about? Is it man? Is it man as in a, a, a physical man, or is it in mankind as in all of humanity? That's one nuance. The other thing that you're going to see in here is the nuance of sons of God. What on earth does that mean? And there's a bunch of different things we can pull from there. You're going to see this one fun word called Nephilim, and that's going to be something we're going to have to deal with today in the text, uh, as well as uh, 120 days is, is another piece that gets talked about in here, and then Finally, as if that weren't enough, Moses gives us a fun word about God being regretting what he has done or repenting from what he has done, which, act, which adds a whole other theological lens to who God is. And so you look at Genesis 6, I look at Genesis 6 this week, and I'm like, thank you, Moses. Thank you so much for putting all of that into one chapter. But we're going to try and talk about that today and give you some context and give you some help along the way. Okay, so stick with me. It's going to be kind of heady for a little bit, but I promise we're going to bring it back into some real practical things along the way the way. So, first off, this idea of sons of God. Uh, let's kind of dive into what that means, because in Genesis 6-1, he says there are apparently there are these sons of God, and they saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as wives. And so there's an interesting take on what is the sons of God. So let me give you five different beliefs on what this sons of God could possibly mean. I'm going to toss out one of them, but You'll see why in a second. So the first one uh, that, that comes up, um, and this is legit. I mean, honestly, this is legit. Uh, there are some that believe sons of God are just aliens, and aliens are impregnating the women of earth, and, and somehow they've made the super race of all these people. And I'm not making that up. If you Google it, it'll be there. Um, so uh, that's not what we hold, okay? So just that's not it. Um, but it could also mean in here, see, you guys are like, man, I should come to church more often. Um, that, that's an actual slide right there. Um, the other belief is line of Seth, and so this is uh, the belief that there is a line of Cain and a line of Seth, and the sons of God are the line of Seth, and the daughters of God are the line of Cain. Uh, and so there's this idea of kind of where that matches in, in earlier pieces. We'll get into that in a second. The other one uh, that comes into this is what the sons of God could be are rulers or kings. They, it's just another name for the rulers that, or the kings of that age. Uh, it's built on a word that we're going to talk about just in a second to get where that comes from. 
The other one is that they are, these are demon-possessed mankind, uh, that somehow there's these guys that have been demon-possessed, and because of their demon possession, they're doing all these weird things. And then the last one is that these are fallen angels based on different texts, but that these are fallen angels who are uh, coming down to earth in physical bodies and are marrying uh, daughters of the world. And so it's basically saying they're fallen angels and they're having marriage with human beings. And looking at these, uh, again, I can say that we can probably toss out two of these pretty quickly. The aliens, we can toss that out. And demon-possessed mankind, I think we can toss that one out as well, which leaves us with the line of Seth, rulers, and angels. And let me just kind of walk through these real quick with you. So up until the second and third century AD, about 200 AD, 300 AD, the sons of God was always interpreted as angels. So put that in your back pocket, right? So in history, in church history, it was always seen as these are angels that were fallen and somehow now are having relationships with mankind. Using passages such as Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, and seeing that every time this term in Hebrew, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament, it is in reference to angels. And so they would say, since Genesis and Job are written about the same time, therefore uh, we can probably diagnose that this sons of God translates the same in Job as it does in Genesis, and these are interpreted as angels. That followed throughout much of the 2nd and 3rd century. In the third, 2nd and 3rd century, though, Jewish interpreters moved interpreting this term, sons of God, into rulers. And they would use passages such as Exodus 22, 8 and 9, Psalm 82, 6, speaking of how kings and pharaohs called themselves God or were rulers with the name of Elohim attached. And so this word Elohim is actually attached into this term. And so they would say it's as if these rulers thought themselves God and it was a term that would have made sense in their culture to the rulers and kings and pharaohs of their day as Moses was even writing and saying it was as if these kings and these rulers who thought themselves gods were the ones that were these sons of God. And that's where the Jewish scholars would have went in the second and third century. About that same time in the second and third century though, Christian scholars moved to interpreting sons of God into this line of Seth, which is the sons of God would be termed there, and then the daughters of God, which would be the line of Cain. And this last view became the mainstream when Augustine wrote his take and his view on the line of Seth, and it's been held throughout most of church history, even through the Reformation and into today. Many would still say what they're talking about here is this term that means that there was, a, there was the lineage of Seth, that they were called the sons of God, and there was a line of Cain, they were the daughters of men, and they somehow intermarried, and they definitely just intermarried, and, and, and because of that, they had these Nephilim, and we're going to see that in, in just a second. Now, some strengths of the line of Seth uh, take, all right? So I said we're going to get a little heady here, so let me give you some, some background as far as some strengths or some pros when it comes to believing that this is the line of Seth uh, in, that, in that here. One is that this marriage between angels and humans has no uh, immediate obvious connection to the immediate text. It's almost as if they're saying, well, this doesn't really make sense to the text. Like, it doesn't make sense that Moses would just jump, like, crazy into, like, hey, uh, there's this sin in the world. It's, it's going through humanity. There's this guy named Noah. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention, there's these angels that came down. They had relations with human beings, and they made this super giant, and all of a sudden, it, the sin got out of control. So they would say it doesn't really kind of mesh with the text, so we're not really sure that it really falls in line with that, so line of Seth makes sense. They would say that an angel drop in here seems out of place and then sequenced all that Moses is trying to communicate. And they would also take in here that the mythical tone seems, again, out of place for the historical retelling that Moses seems to be giving here. And so a lot of theirs would based on the, the nuance and the context and, and, and bringing that out. 
The angel view, so there's a line of Seth view. The angel view, the fallen angel view, it has strengths as well. The strengths are simply what we mentioned before. That the Hebrew term here, sons of God, means bene alachim. And so this, this term is only found here, and it is found only in one other place in the Hebrew Scripture, and that's in the book of Job. And in Job, we find it being written about the time when all these angels assembled before God, and they met with God, and they said, have we, have we, have we talked about Job? And there's this, there's this group of angels that are around the throne, and they're having a conversation with God, and that's the only other time we see the term. And so they would say, if we kind of follow the way we do hermeneutical study of Scripture, that we would see if, is, what's, what's in context here, what's in context of a book next to it. And then further on, uh, they get their context as well, where they would say, not only do we have proof in the Old Testament that this could be the case, that these are fallen angels, they would go into 2 Peter chapter 4, verse, uh, 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which is on the screen here. So, 2 Peter says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, he goes on to say, then how much more so for us would he not give his justice and restraint against those who go against him? And they would say that based off of a Greek reading of the text, that this idea of sparing angels was actually tied back to Genesis chapter 6. And they would say Peter believes that these were fallen angels. Because Peter is going back to Genesis 6 and how we read the text. And there's much disagreement even on that. One of the strong things even with this is they would say, you know, well, it, it doesn't make sense that it wouldn't be that because... Why would, why would he give us story after story in Second Peter chapter 2 about going against false doctrine and give us story after story after the Old Testament if, if this angel story wasn't somewhere in the Old Testament? Does that make sense? So he's kind of like, since, since it's a story in the Old Testament, it's got to be there, so let's, let's tie it to Genesis chapter 6. And then the other thing that's found in here is Jude chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. There's actually one chapter in Jude. makes it really easy. So Jude 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Again, you see some very familiar terms. Angels, gloomy darkness judgment, very, very similar to 2 Peter. And so both 2 Peter and Jude, they say, are calling us to, to, to look at Genesis 6 and saying these are fallen angels that somehow had physical form, to which that is kind of interesting because you'll get into more of that when we get into Sodom and Gomorrah and all that stuff. But, but that's kind of the take. And they would say because of that, then they had these Nephilim that were part of it. And they would say 2 and Jude are calling us back to uh, that statement. Now, Wherever you land on any of those five, uh, those are not closed-handed issues for us, and so those are always just kind of fun to debate and talk through, because no matter where you land, the issue is simply this, not to get caught up in all the what-ifs and all of the what, who could it be and what about this, what about that, but the, 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 the reality is we're trying to interpret Scripture correctly. That's the first thing. But secondly, we're trying to understand the context, and, and here's just a real quick caveat on Second Peter and Jude. So this is the last thing I'll say on this, I promise. In 2 Peter and Jude, I find it very interesting that 2 Peter and Jude are both calling us in the larger context of what they're writing in their, in their letters. They are warning us against false doctrine. Does that ring interesting to any of us? That in the midst of debating Genesis 6 and whether these are aliens or angels, 
that, that Peter's bigger message in all of this is, let's not get caught up in false doctrine. Let's refute false doctrine. Let's stick to how Scripture is. To where I go back to all of those five, right? Any, any of those five, which I think you could take out two, uh, but any of those three then that we would say, what, are these, what do these sons of God really mean? I think the reality goes back to what we talked about last week, and it's a quote from John Walton, and it says this, a successful interpretation is not the one that fills in the gaps most persuasively. It is the one that lets the gaps remain gaps and articulates the cohesiveness of the text as it stands. It isn't searching for nuances and pieces that aren't there, but instead it allows the text to be the text. And in the sons of God, that's what we have. We have this weird verse and this weird term, and we're somehow trying to make sense of it. And, and, and we can kind of lean either angels or line of Seth. And I think both have some really big merit. And I would even say there's probably even some merit in the Jewish tradition of, of this idea of being rulers or, or God-like status of their rulers and, and taking any daughter that they wanted and the whole thing. All right, so, so that's kind of step one. Are we, are we okay there? All right, so we're going to... That's, that's just, we've, we've hit verse one. Okay. All right. So we're going to see where we go today. All right. So he says, and the sons of them, daughters were born to them. And, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. That's an issue. Okay. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then it goes into verse four as if that wasn't enough. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and the men, and women, men, and, uh, men of renown. Now Nephilim, another fun term that we get today is this word that, that's translated in Hebrew, Nephilim. <laughs> so you're like, thank you, Moses. That's great. So Nephilim never translates out of Hebrew. It's always Nephilim. And there's only one other place we see Nephilim, and that's in the book of Joshua, or I'm sorry, in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, 13. And the easiest translation and the only translation we really get from the Bible is giant. That's all we get. They're really large people. Now, some of you say, well, Nephilim, I've heard that these are like super angels. Like angels came down, they had relationships with mankind, and they had sons and daughters that, that were born of these angels. And as a result, I mean, I, I mean I'm just saying, if, if you trace your lineage back, like <laughs> if you're born of an angel, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, you're going to be pretty stacked and you're pretty jacked up. Have you ever seen an angel? You know, I think we think like babies and wings and cherub butts. That's not it. Angels were terrifying in nature, and they were beasts of men, and they were terrific to see. And, and, and so if you had that kind of happening, you would think sons and daughters, you're like, wow, that dude's glowing. That's crazy. Okay, so, so some of that comes into play, and you maybe have heard that before. But here's the interesting thing, thing with that one. I'm trying to wrap up some of this because some of you are glazing over. But, but the, the, the fact of the matter is this Nephilim is, is actually, that, that view is actually taken from a non-canonical book by the, by the name of Enoch. And if you read the book of Enoch, you'll get a ton of this reference that somehow these angels formed and it traces this lineage. And Enoch is the book that many use to give that version. To which I have to say, well, if, if it's not a canonical book, I'm going to maybe read Enoch and that's interesting, but I'm not going to take it as truth. Because it's not in Scripture. What Scripture tells us is simply that there is some kind of easiest way to understand this is giants. So, all that to say, 
What we read, if we were to put those into context, is this. When the man began to multiply on the face of the earth, the lines of Seth or lines of Cain or the angels, fallen angels, uh, were attractive and they took wives as they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in the man forever. His days are in twice. For the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the, again, sons of Seth, line of Seth, came into the line of Cain or whether it's angels with humanity, they bore children to them and they were mighty men who created of old the men of renown. To which we have to say, no matter what's happening, it was, out of con- it was out of bounds for what God was desiring to happen because in the context, it's all seen as evil and it should not have happened. Now, add on top of that, the, 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 the debate that happens over the day shall be 120 years. Is that talking about a humanity only getting 120 years or is that a ticking time clock from the time I say it? Noah has 120 years to complete the ark. That's debatable. We're not going to get into that. And then we get the final word today. You guys are like, that's a debatable thing. Yeah, that's, that's a thing. And then the last piece of all this is if that's not enough, then we get this amazing verse in chapter uh, 6, verse 6. It says, the Lord God saw, in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, evil only, was only evil continually. And then you get this verse. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and man, animals creeping and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll get into that. Verse 6 is a very difficult passage and a difficult part because if you read it just straight out, you say, well, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So did God repent here? Did, did God make an oops and then kind of work his way backward? The interesting thing here is this verb is so hard to translate. It's the word called nakam. And here's the interesting thing about this verb is it's, it's translated 10 different ways in Scripture. <laughs> Again, thank you, Moses. It, it's a word that's very difficult to nail down, and it's very difficult outside of context to nail down. And the fact that it's used 10 different ways in Scripture, not only translated 10 different ways— I think the easiest way to understand God's heart here is in the accounting world. So I would take this term, and I would say regretting in this whole thing, I would take it into the term that is part of this verb. I'm not making this up. This sticks to the verb tense. And it says it's this idea of the books being out of balance. And it's, it's used this way in, in Hebrew as well. It's this way of, I need to make an adjustment. There's an outstanding debt brought against humanity's sin, and I, as a just God, must balance the books. I've got to make this right. The Lord basically audited the account because he had made humankind on the earth, and his heart was tormented in him. It was distressed in him. And so the Lord says, I will wipe out humankind that I've created from the face of the earth because I've audited the account. I've looked at it, and the only way to do this is I've got to deal with my justice as much as I deal with my mercy. And so God was merely acting according to who he is, just and must deal with sin justly, and merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, moved by compassion, which we'll see in a second as well. All of that, all of that then leads us to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepeth. We see that this is all leaning towards a person or some kind of a, a future thing here. He's allowing humanity to get out of control, 
and, and yet there's some kind of mention of Noah. We read on in chapter 6, verse 11 through 17. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. That's interesting. All flesh corrupted their way in the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violent violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 units, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life, which, in which is in the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. We see that God saying this is, I will bring a, a flood. I will bring something that has never been on the earth before. And that is this idea of almost this world or creation then collapsing in on itself. What he's given us here in chapter 6, verse 11 to 17, is he's showing us that humanity has gone out of control and is basically collapsing in on itself. The sin is so bad and so severe that there's not a hope, there's not a glimmer of goodness you know, I think of even this week of, of all the things that are going on around the world and, and every person I've talked to and even family members, it's this, this feeling as if it's like, are we, are we heading to the end? Like, are we, are we in the last days? Because it just feels as if things are ratcheting up at a, at a big pace here. And, and I'm just kind of curious where, where you land on that. And I said, I don't really fully know. I'm going to go with Jesus that we're never going to know the full day or the hour. But let me just say that it feels as if humanity is collapsing in on itself. Does it not? I mean, everything from last year to this year, it's, it's just nuts that you think evil is on display in one way in 2020, and then you see it in a whole other degree in 2021. And we're like, maybe 2022? you know, and we're holding some kind of hope. But ultimately what we're seeing, unfortunately, around the world is humanity is folding in on itself. And yet, I don't know if you've seen the pictures. I'm not going to put them up, but I don't know if you've seen the pictures of hope that are coming out of the Middle East of people holding children and grieving and loving and caring and, and escorting people in droves onto planes to get them to escape this tyranny that is around them. There is hope in the pictures that are seen. In the midst of all the ugliness of humanity, there is still hope out there in pictures that we see and in the fact that there are people around the world that are donating, financing these things to happen to the, to the rate of, there's one person that I've, I've listened to that basically is, has been able to raise in three days $30 million to get people out. Now, I look at that and I'm like, $30 million, that's an insane amount of money to raise. At the same time, I look at that and I think, wow, okay, so maybe we're still okay. Right? Maybe there's still hope for us. Maybe God doesn't have to take us out completely because there's still some kind of a hope in us that if we can get that amount of money to get people out of that kind of country, man, maybe there's some hope for us yet. What's happening here is there is no hope left. That is, that is gone by the wayside, and God says, I've got to bring justice to this, this thing. And so he brings this flood. Now, we're going to get into this next week, but there are four different things on flood. So you're like, great. Great, you just went through all five, now you got flood. Yeah, so, so flood is, it, was it a global flood? Uh, and, and it covered the entire world, which we'll talk about that next week of why that's kind of 
up and down and how that works mathematically. Um, and then is it the known world flood? In other words, is he just talking about the known world of the day flood where the continents kind of together and then it was just kind of a flooding over those and there was still time to recede into the ocean? Was it a regional flood or was it just a local flood? Like it was just kind of an area, which I have to say, I always laugh at the local flood. Like if it's a local flood, <laughs> wouldn't you just like leave? I mean, if it's just like a local flood, like if I'm thinking, I'm like, if my house is on a floodplain or I'm on a local flood and I know it's coming, wouldn't you just kind of pack up and be like, I'll move to the next city until it recedes and I'll come back? It's just a thing. Uh, uh, so, so we're going to look at that next week as far as which flood this actually is. But here's the real deal and when it comes down to all of this. The simple thing of all of this is simply this, that God must deal justly and still deal mercifully with his people. And so he sees the, the sin and the deprivation on the world and on the earth at this point. And he says, I must act justly. I must balance the books as it were. And he also can't not be who he is in dealing mercifully. And so, as we've said before, we, we, there was, there was a, there's a hope in this passage that I kind of just, I breezed over quickly because I want to bring it back now. That as you see in Genesis chapter 6, the world imploding, Think again of that, that moment at the bottom of a stairwell where things are just going crazy. The noise is louder than you can imagine. And maybe you're there this morning. Like your world feels like that. Like it just feels like my world is imploding and I just can't get a grip on things and I can't really make sense of it. If that's the, the scenario here and we find in here, yes, I'm sending a flood, but here's what we also find in this passage in Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that's first. And then secondly, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. You see the beauty here? There is grace being dispelled or given to a man by the name of Noah. And by that grace, we get more of who he is, who was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah, I love this. This is a great term. Noah walked with God. You see, in the middle of all of this destruction, God remembers his promise. And he says, I still need a seed to come out of Adam and Eve line that will restore the world and so I, I have to remember a promise, and I have to bring this out. So he brings out Noah, and it's out of Noah that we get our King Christ out of this promised Noah. Was Noah perfect? No. The dude had some issues. You're going to see those later. But, but, but ultimately, God remains faithful and establishes his covenant. Genesis chapter 6, 18 to 19. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of flesh, you shall bring two of every sort to the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. We'll cover this more next week, but in the midst of all the imploding chaos, here's the bottom line. When the world is imploding on itself, you have a God who keeps his promises. You have a God who is faithful and just to deliver what he's promised even centuries and years ahead of you. And we see that here, that yes, he is strong in justice, but he is also strong in mercy this morning. Now, 
how do we respond? How do we, how do we come back to this in our own worlds, in our own lives today? And I want to kind of wrap up with this. So there is uh, only one other place in Scripture, or in the Old Testament, I should say, where this word of flood is used in the Old Testament. At least, in, at least this word for flood is used in the Old Testament. It's only one other place. And it's used by King David. So here's the, here's the beautiful thing. It is used of King David who was from the line, who was writing a psalm about a God who restores and keeps his covenants with us forever. You see, I think we're fast-paced and we want things on our schedule. We want to just be able to knock things out immediately. We want all the answers right now. But God is slow and God is direct and, and he will always remember what he's done. And, and it's through this King David that we have a psalm in front of us, Psalm 29. I'm going to bring the team up and I want to close with this psalm, Psalm 29. Because I believe that if, if it was important enough for David to bring up in a psalm, it's important for us to tie it to Genesis chapter 6 as well. And this psalm is, is beautiful in nature because it will remind us of who God is. It will remind us of his strength and his power, but it will also remind us that he is a God who desires to make things new on our behalf. And so here's what I want to do to close out this morning. I'm going to ask that everybody uh, just take a second to stand up with me as we do this. We don't typically uh, get to do many responsive readings per se, um, but I would love to do this this morning in a way to not just do a responsive reading, but as a way for you, hopefully, to acknowledge, man, if it's been that for you, like it's just been like the world's imploding on you, and you need to actually say this out loud, we want to do that together as a body this morning. And I think this is going to be a great response to learning all that we know about Genesis 6 and who God is in the midst of it. And then I'm going to have Rich lead us in a song this morning uh, that kind of brings that out again. But here's how this is going to go. So you'll see uh, the words in white will be what I will say. Uh, and then congregation will read the words in yellow on the next, uh, next verses together. You'll read that together. And then at the very end of this, the last slide, uh, we will read that together in unison and be led in that. So let me pray, and then we will go through this responsive reading together. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is true, it is faithful, it is enough for everything that we face in 2021, and it is still true today as it was when Moses was handwriting it back in Deuteronomy. I thank you, God, that it is true for today. I thank you for the things that even we can't grasp or understand, and we can still trust you as being a God who is in the midst of all the chaos offering us glimmers of hope. And I do pray this morning for those who are in this room and, and they just need to say these words out loud. They need to affirm these uh, to themselves, uh, maybe to, to those around them. But I pray that this would be an encouragement to them. I pray that your word would be a light to them. I pray that it would, it would take that weight off of them this morning and they could leave it with you. I pray for those this morning who are doing really, really well, and this is just another acclamation of, man, how good is our God? This is, this is their words as well. But, but ultimately... We pray, God, that we would, we would have the heart of David here as we acknowledge who you are and what you are doing and acting justly and mercifully in our worlds today. So we thank you. It's in your name we pray.